The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Hey man, how you doing? Chris, how are you, mate? It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Smith. Here's the funny thing too, as we just jump right into this, you're actually in Winnipeg right now, which is the coincidence well, of all coincidences. I'll be there in about five hours, Chris. Okay, but you're, you're playing there tonight, right? There. That's right, yeah. So how, how does it work? Do you guys just fly from town to town still? Yeah. Yeah, no more tour buses for us. <laughs> Leave that I for the my time on tour buses. <laughs> yeah. Leave that for the kids, right? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty funny though. Um, I don't know if you remember this. I've told you this story before, but um, probably I think 1987 when you guys were in Winnipeg for I guess it's somewhere on time tour. My friend found out what hotel you guys were staying in. And somehow I ended up on the right floor and just started knocking on random doors. And lo and behold, I knocked <laughs> on yours. And you answered. Oh, really? Yeah, you answered. You had uh, your hair. I, was I rude? <laughs> you actually weren't. You had you, if, considering it was some t- punk kid knocking at your door, you had your hair wrapped up in a towel. Oh, really? Yeah. And I said, uh, can I take a picture with you? And you said, I just got out of the shower. <laughs> <laughs> And then, Fantastic! And then you closed the door, and I was like, uh, "What does that mean? Should I wait, or what should I do?" <laughs> do you still have moments like that on the road, where, where overzealous fans find out where you guys are staying and, and try and knock on your doors? Or, or that's a lovely story. It's, it's so innocent. The, the trouble is now you get people; they find out what hotel you're in, and they're, they're professional autograph hunters. Oh. As you probably know yourself, I right? Mean, and they they hijack you as soon as you set foot outside. They then you can tell them straight away because they just don't look like fans. They've got bags and bags of memorabilia that they want you to sign so they can sell it. And that is uh, a thing that really you know ticks most of us off. You know because it, it the genuine fans like you know the kid that knocked on my door you know is is kind of. Uh, is all right, but these people spoil it for because I won't sign any of that stuff because you know they sell it on. What well, you're right um, too, and they find out for whatever reason what what airport you're at or what hotel you're at. Yeah, and like you said, you can and see they hassle them. you as well. And they, you know, in New York, they they, they can be really offensive, or rude if you don't. They'll chase after you and start start um, start harassing you. You know, 
it's a, it's a real bit of a pain, you know. It's funny too because you'll but, have. But um, as far as fans go, yeah, we do. We we get um, we get fans in South America. They they they, they tend to be the most fanatical ones, and they'll they'll stand outside the hotel in you know sometimes in their hundreds, <laughs> which is which is mad. Obviously, we can't sign everything for them. We you know give them a wave and that, but they'll. I remember the last time we were in El Salvador, it was absolutely mobbed outside the hotel. But when I looked an hour later, the the, the police had moved them all on, and there was like riot police and everything, which just sort of, uh, it, you know, goes to show you what it's like down there. If, you know, a group of kids gather together, they just get split up straight away, you know, no messing around. Isn't it amazing in this day and age, though, that you still have you know that things have changed like you said for music and for rock and roll but a band like iron maiden will still incite that type of reaction f- from the fans yeah it is quite amazing really it's quite amazing but like in south america they're very passionate about you know it's not a rich the average person is not rich i mean they put great store in their in their soccer you know sport mm-hmm. they love they're passionate about sports almost like a religion and same with music and if they think that someone's genuine they really get get behind you, you know. They sort of they're like football supporters. It's that kind of, um, you know, the spirit they have. Yeah, they're kind of a fanatical. In fact, one, I think one team down there has even got the Eddie mascot as their their mascot. I, I think it might be Vasco da Gama. I'm not sure, but one soccer team uses the Eddie logo as a on their flags for their team and everything. And you see that too. There's a, there's a goaltender in the NHL. I can't remember what team. I think maybe the Vancouver Canucks. He has that. Yep. No, it it's um now we just played there because because someone uh, showed us it well someone showed it to one of our crew mm-hmm. yeah the, the the goalie and he said here you know some said oh, look, you know the, this guy wears the thing and he said it he held it and it, he said it, it it was the most smelliest thing he's ever <laughs> smelled <laughs> But he had the, had the Eddie mask, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, like I said, the last time I saw Maiden, I think it was in Las Vegas, I saw you there. Um, just even in the concourse for the arena before the show, you know, people were singing and chanting Iron Maiden, and it really felt like, it. Well, you know, it, it's not, the, you know, like in 1986, it just never ends, just this this energy that happens when Iron Maiden comes comes to town. It's a different energy now because... It's a much warmer. I mean, I remember in um, the eighties, it was a much more aggressive kind of vibe, mm-hmm. touring with Priest and Scorpions, and you know, you, the audience had a, a real crackle of of um, danger about it. I think because mm. young people were probably a lot of them were, you know, pretty out of it. Uh, there was a little bit of trouble here and there. Now it seems to be, you know, people are a lot older. Obviously, you know, we're not going to be around forever, and we're still still rocking out pretty well, but. You can feel that people, I suppose, you know, people wonder how we can keep doing it. I mean, we're doing it at a pretty, pretty high level, I think, still, you know, because we don't play every single night. We play, you know, two, three shows a week, and we we try to put the same energy in them. I mean, especially Bruce is pretty amazing. But um, it's, a, it's a different kind of energy now, you know. I, I'd, I'd hate to say nostalgic because we're still, you know, making new music, which is what I think, you know, is the lifeblood of the band, you know, keeping, you know, doing new music. Well, it's very important to, 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 to Iron Maiden. And, and plus you're one of the bands, there's a few like Metallica does it and ACDC does it. When you put out a new record, it's an event and you have no problems playing when you do put out a new record, like book of souls, for example, 
five or six or seven yeah. tunes from the new record, which a lot of bands yeah. wouldn't be able to do, but Maiden still can do that because people are into it. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the Book of Souls. I mean, there was a song called Red and a Black Girl. I think it's 12 or 13 minutes long yeah. we did. On, on, I thought, this is not going to fly live. But people absolutely loved it. There was a really long instrumental sections, and uh, but they are kind of it is kind of melodic. Sorry, melodic, you know. So mm-hmm. you know, there's there's stuff that people can sort of latch onto. But um, yeah, also I remember back a few albums ago, we played the whole album in its entirety. You know, a matter of life and death. More yeah. like a statement. Yeah, more like a statement. You know, that we're not a we're not a nostalgia act. We're not a cabaret act. You know, we're gonna. And that's the way. That's what we are, you know. There was a lot of confused people on that tour. I remember because I saw that one too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to be honest. When it, Steve suggested doing it, I didn't think it was a very good idea. But once he's got something in his mind, you know, and that's it. So we stuck with it, and um, it's probably, I think, a good thing in the long run. I think that you just hit something really interesting to me too, because since, since you've come back, and it's been gosh twenty odd years since you and Bruce came back. Do you guys, now that you're older and wiser, do you kind of give each other a little bit more space? Like you said, like in the past, maybe you would have fought Steve for having that idea. Now do you guys kind of just go, well, it's Steve's idea. We just got to go with it and make it work. Does it make it easier to to, to get along in this day and age? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, you definitely get older a bit wiser. You, you get a bit more aware of other people as you get older generally and how they feel about things. I think it's just a natural thing, so... Yeah, it's a bit more, a little bit more compromising in in what we do, but you know, I think we're all we sort of buy into the, you know, the ethos of the band. You know, mm-hmm. we all know we've got a much clearer idea of what it's all about. You know, especially I was out of the band for sort of nine years, so it's almost like I I came back with a different perspective. You know, I could see it from an outsider's point of view. Whereas in the eighties, we was just album tour, album tour. There was no life outside the band, so it was it was difficult to get difficult to get perspective. You know. Sure. I've spoken to, to Bruce and to Steve about kind of how Bruce got back in when you because you were jamming with Bruce at that point in time. Was that always kind of the thing where you guys a package deal? How, how did that get presented to you to come back to me? Uh, mm, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I well, Bruce approached me sort of mid 90s and he had this he'd written some songs of Roy Z for his uh, first uh, album with Roy. It wasn't his first solo album, but around the accident, the birth uh, yeah. time. So I really liked what they were doing. So I, I just chucked my lot in with them and contributed a few songs. And it went on from there for, for the next sort of three, four, five years. Then they wanted Bruce to come back. Blaze parted from the band. So uh, I was playing with Bruce. And then there was something in the air about me coming back. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do one tour or come on for half a set, you know. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I thought, you know, I, by that time, I, I would have, you know, if you'd have asked me 10 years before, I said, no, I'll probably never do it. But, you know, things change. Like you say, get older and wiser. I thought, well, it might be nice, you know, just to round it off. But, uh, again, Steve, you know, come out with, he does come out with some wacky ideas that at first you think are not going to work. And so he suggested to the guys, why don't we have three guitarists? You can imagine what that, <laughs> what the room was like when he said that. Right. Probably Dave and Yannick looked at each other like, what? <laughs> you know, Leonard, Leonard Maiden. Um, but, um, you know, I joined up and we went down to Portugal to, to uh, write some songs. And I had uh, I had the song Wicker Man 
I had the riff and that, and we, you know, someone said, has anyone got any new ideas? And so I started playing that, and then away we went, and it just we never looked back, really. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. How was it kind of rehearsing the parts to, to do, I mean, going from a two-guitar band for playing some of those songs from, you know, like Power Slave or Two Minutes to Midnight or whatever? Was it pretty natural for the three of you guys to figure out the parts? I'll do this one, you do that one, try this, try that. Because there's a lot of intricate three-part harmonies in those songs that weren't there when you first recorded them. Well, put it this way. I mean, if you, if you had three Ingvay Malmsteins in the band or three Richie Blackmores, it would have been a fight after about five minutes, mm-hmm. you know. But because, you know, Dave's one of my oldest friends, you know, so we've worked together for years. We know the score. Yannick's a lovely guy. But I have to say that, you know, Yann wasn't going to change what he was going to play. He's just been, he's just, you know, he's very set in his way. So I, I thought, well, I, I sensed that immediately. So I started um, looking at different ways of doing things. And, you know, I've I'd, I'd been playing with a drop D tuning in Bruce's band. Mm-hmm. So I got used to that. So when I first joined, we played Rothschild. I played that in like drop D tuning and Run of the Hills was in D. So again, I tuned it down. So, you know, it gave it a slightly different sound. So, I was bringing that in, playing lower octaves on the on the harmonies and stuff like that. So I played a lot of stuff totally different to what I did when I was in the band before, you know, which is quite interesting. Yes, it's also pretty. Uh, I'm not gonna say pretty. It's pretty professional of you to understand that those guys had their th- way of doing things, and for you to come back and go, okay, I want to do it my way again. You were kind of yeah. adapting, right? Well, you know, that's my kind of my personality anyway. You know, I'm I'm pretty good with fitting in. You know. With, with other people so I mean I think that's a reason why the bands lasted so long because it's the it's the combination of people it's, in some bands you know it's, it's a list as long as your arm you you know your, your deep purples your zeppelins at some point they sort of implode you know mm-hmm. um, because of the egos involved but you know we got a nice balance of personalities in the band I think you know the right amount of extra extroverts and sort of people are prepared to compromise, you know. That's not to say, you know, if you feel strongly about something, you shouldn't press it a bit, but, you know, I think that's that's why the band's, one of the reasons the band's lasted so long. And I think, too, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the phone, there's a real chemistry that, it's like a, like a great soccer team or a great hockey team. Sometimes you'll have a guy that just the chemistry is so good, and then when he leaves the team, even though everyone else is still there, it's not quite the same. And there's a, definite chemistry that you bring to the band uh, that wasn't there when you were gone so I think when you came back even though there was another guitar player it really kind of completed the overall package of, of the kind of modern era Iron Maiden well thank you very much that's true <laughs> um, I think I think um, I'm a stickler I mean I have this thing about tempo and that's I've I've had it ever since I joined the band, and I still have it to some degree. And I'm I'm really fanatical about the tempo of the songs, because sometimes when we play live, it just absolutely takes off like a train, you know. Mm. So I'm always the one that sticks me out and say, I think we should try and play this 
proper tempo. <laughs> I know it's exciting and everything, but you know, if 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 we play it this way, you know, it'll breathe, it'll sound better. I wouldn't say we've had arguments about it, but you know, it was like two minutes to midnight when we came out of the band and playing it much too fast. I said, no, this song does not work because I said I've seen you play this live. I said I saw Fear of the Dark is only great, and two minutes to midnight it, it was too fast. I said, let's try it like this. So that's you know, it's stuff like that. You know, little things like that make a difference, and you know, uh, and it's chemistry. And then someone else is bringing you know, something else, you know. But that's one of the things I, you know, I try to do. It's funny because even when you get a new, you know, we just got a new bass player into our band a couple of years ago, and when someone comes from the outside, you don't know even if sometimes if you're playing something a little bit wrong because everyone's just played it that way for the longest time. It yeah, takes, exactly, yeah. Right, take someone from the outside to go, you know, this isn't exactly right. Are you guys sure you want to do it that way? What do you mean it's not right? And then you actually listen. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's right. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, sometimes um, I noticed uh, something we, we did on uh, a few of the songs we're playing now that uh, I, I had to go back and listen to and we weren't, you know, well, I wasn't playing it right. <laughs> you know, you can't get too complacent. Speaking of, of complacent um, and kind of guys being, you know, you guys are Iron Maiden taking on the world. And then a few years ago, um, and Bruce discussed this when he was on the show, Bruce gets diagnosed with, with tongue cancer. And then you guys don't know what the future of the band is. Um, it seems since Bruce has come back, you guys are almost better than ever as far as being tighter on stage, more energy on stage. Bruce has given it more on stage. Did that throw you guys for a loop thinking that, we don't know what's going to happen with this band. Yeah, it was awful. You know, we got a phone call just before Christmas, you know, Paul Bruce said this um, thing he had to deal with. And, uh, but I don't know. I, I just had the feeling he would come through it because he's so positive. You know, mm -hmm. I've never heard him. Well, hardly ever heard him feel sorry for himself or be negative. You know, it's one of his strengths. So, although, you know, I can't possibly imagine what he went through. Um, I, I thought he was going to be okay. And certainly, the band wasn't the, the foremost thing, you know, we just wanted him to get better and then let it take its course. And if, you know, if we carried on, so be it. But yeah, I mean, he's come back and he's absolutely thrown himself into the band again. I mean, the show is, I mean, a lot of the stuff, you know, he had a big, big hand in, you know, a lot of the, the props and the, the, the actual show aspect, apart from the singing, you know, he's really brought out that theatrical side that he's got. And he's absolutely loving it. He's like a kid in a sweet shop, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, and with this set, and the musically, the set is, you know, it's really a lot of fun to play. And the whole production, I think it's just kind of peaked on this tour, even, you know, even though we're sort of at the veteran stage now, mm. you know. And I certainly, from my point of view, I never get complacent about, about it, you know. I'm always trying to push myself a bit. When when you guys are putting together this this set and it's it's a great thing that Maiden's done over the last ten years or so. We mentioned you'll play a matter of life and death in its entirety, or you'll do six songs from Book of Souls. But then the next tour afterwards is always more of a of a greatest hits type of a vibe. And what I love about this set list, and it's something I hate nowadays, you can cheat and go online and look up the set list, but you'll see that it's not mm -hmm. just you know, 80 songs, which I would be very disappointed if it was. There's a lot of, there's a couple blaze tunes. There's a, a couple tunes. There's yeah. a greater good of God from matter, life and death. 
at this stage, how do you guys put together this set? And like you said, you enjoy pushing yourself. Which type of songs push yourself in, in this day and age? We used to kind of do the set way back in a, in the day. I mean, there's songs that you had to play, you know. But with this, I mean, it's tied in with the with the video game and gotcha. the different worlds that are in that. Um, I say video game is com- computer game. Showing my age, really. Um, <laughs> So it's it's combining all that. So that was a bit of a guideline to the set, you know. A lot of the time, you know, Steve will, and Bruce will get their heads together to, to come up with a set. Obviously, Bruce has got his, you know, as a singer, you know, what you want to sing live and what you're happy singing live. Right. You know, in terms of the, in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the punishment on your voice and whether you could do that particular song uh, night after night or, you know. So, yeah, the set works out really well. I mean, if again, if I if I really strongly object to something, I, I I'll say so. But usually it works out great. Everyone's got a, you know the room to express themselves. The solos are shared out. Um, there's audience participation. You know you you got to take all those things into consideration. But uh, yeah, I think this is one of the most enjoyable. I'm, I'm certainly personally have I'm having a, you know a great time on stage. It's you know most fun tour I've ever done. Really? Out of all the Maiden tours, this is the most fun you've had? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, back in the 80s, it was just, it was just mad. You know, we were playing every single night, you know, you're partying as well. And you just come, sometimes you go on stage and you can, you know, you just got a split headache. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're playing Phantom of the Opera 100 miles an hour and you're going, geez, you know. But this one, it's like the music lead, the band's playing great, you know. I'll tell you another thing now, Chris, you probably know this yourself, is uh, the monitoring systems are so good now. Oh, yeah. You can hear what you're playing. <laughs> and uh, we have, well, I have in-ear monitors, which makes an incredible difference. You know, like I say, you know, when we first started, it was just absolute mayhem on stage. You know, Steve has like, had 2,000 watts of bass gear. He's got cabinets everywhere. So you get into this thing where you're all competing. Bruce joined the band, and he had a huge PA system built for his voice on stage and so that was deafening mm-hmm. so everyone was competing with each other so, but now you know the sound's so much better you can hear what you're doing and it's just like uh, so enjoyable you know it's interesting was it was it hard to get used to the inner ears uh, i know i was talking to to biff from sax and he said it took him years to get used to having the inner ear system after fighting on stage and trying to find the sweet spot and knowing where you can hear yourself and now suddenly it's also clear was it an instant uh, uh, acceptance from you after been doing it for so long off the off the monitors? Well, the first thing you have to do again is um, all of a sudden you can hear yourself really clearly. <laughs> you go, oh, that's what I sound like, <laughs> and it's all about you know tweaking it and getting the sound right. You know, and I say to my monitor guy, I don't want to sound like the amps in my ear roll. I want to sound like if I'm watching the show and it's a balance of everything mm-hmm. obviously I want to hear my guitar a little bit louder and I started off just using it in one ear and having my uh, in my left ear and then my right ear was just you know didn't have anything in there so mm-hmm. I, I got used to it gradually and I was the only one who used them for about 10 years and then um, Yannick and Dave started to use them and again they said I, how, I, they couldn't believe why they didn't use, start using them earlier uh, so the three of us Three guitar players use in your monitors, yeah. Uh, the rest of the guys have their own thing. Steve doesn't use anything at all. Nick's got an old-fashioned kind of uh, 
speaker system and, and Bruce has got, you know, his regular wedges. Bruce doesn't but use... But like you like, say, so you can't... I mean, you can get a sweet spot on stage without... You know, but then you you can't stand rooted to one spot one spot all night. You know, well, sure, you can yeah. all do that. You can just stand. But you can't just. I love to stand in front of my amp and just play because then you can feel it and hear it. But you got you know, you got to move around and and interact with the audience a bit. So that's what uh, I have done too with the ears. I actually have a I got a special earpiece made with just the left ear, and there's nothing. There's no piece for the right ear because I like having the live ambiance yeah. of the crowd. Because even yeah, if you course. like the crowd, yeah, it's yeah. not the same, right? Yeah, yeah, as, uh, yeah. You need to. I, I think it's slightly different for a frontman because you need to gauge, you know, what's going on in the audience. If you just have like a live album sound in your cans, you're not really the audience could be mm-hmm. not reacting. You wouldn't know, you know. So yeah, that's probably a good way to go. When you're looking at the set list here, and, and uh, there's a song like "Flight of Icarus," for example, that hasn't been played in such I don't know thirty odd years. And it's funny because hardcore Maiden fans will tell you the exact, oh, they haven't played this since 1984 on the Peace of Mind final show in Dortmund. And is it fun playing those old, <laughs> you know, is it fun digging out those type of old songs fr- from uh, from the past and playing them again? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's really weird. You know, some songs we haven't played for 10 or 15 years and we got a rehearsal and just start, just play it right, you mm-hmm. know, right off the bat. It's amazing. It's like muscle memory, you know. Right. There was a few train wrecks here and there as well, but you know, <laughs> um, it's amazing what you what you do remember. And it's uh, you know you forget how, how good some of the old songs were, you know. Right, but even so, like you said, some of the ones like "Sign of the Cross" and "For the Greater Good of God," like those are ten minute songs that you haven't yeah. played for a while. You probably can't just pick up the old guitar and go right into those ones. Um, you'd be surprised. Really? It's, yeah. I'm, well, I don't know about Sign of the Cross, but, you know, great or good. But that, those are probably my two favorite songs to play on stage. I mean, they're, they're so dramatic and so, you know, interesting musically. You know, I think as Steve really nailed it on those ones, you know, his um, epic style of sort of proggy metal writing. I mean, they're really great live songs. Those are the ones where you really have to kind of pay attention to what you're doing. Well... They, but they have a flow to them, you know. Mm. And uh, Sign of the Cross is pretty off the wall with a, with the uh, with the Gregorian monks <laughs> singing away and everything. It's it's uh, you know and the, and the time some of the time signatures are. Uh, but you know after a while you sort of you get in the flow of it. It gets in your blood and you just just do it. You know. The longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you ever sit back like when there's a show going on, like you said, where there's it starts off with a giant plane flying above you, and then it goes to Scottish yeah. clans, and then it goes to you yeah. know Gregorian monks and flamethrowers and winged idols? Like, do you ever sit back and go, "Holy shit! Like this is just insane." Yeah. Well, maybe when I when I'm older, I'll be sitting in my uh, armchair and uh, reflecting on it. I mean, yeah, it is. It is. You, you certainly go through all the um, 
I guess the songs are very they, they evoke sort of sort of these these feelings you know they're mm. very dramatic I mean that's the only way I can put it and they're, they're just great fun to play live and I think the audience sort of uh, gets into that as well um, yeah I mean certainly you do go through a lot of uh, a lot of themes and playing a guitar solo with a Spitfire you know two foot from your head is quite quite a thrill I tell you it's one of those things that Maiden is a band that that can do this and probably no band ever again will be able to do the things that you do. I remember last time when Bruce was, uh, I think it was book of souls where he pulls out the Eddie's heart and throws it into the crowd. And it's like this plastic heart. And it's like only iron Maiden can do this (laughs) to where you think it's the coolest thing ever. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's got a version on the ridiculous in it really sometimes, but, um, I think, yeah, it just seems to, I mean, as Bruce points out now, we're even getting, good reviews from Rolling Stone magazine. What? You know, uh, and that's, they've all, exactly. Then they've always ignored us and kind of looked down their nose at us. But now they're like saying, well, it's almost like we've become acceptable. Uh, it's a bit of fun, isn't it? It's a bit of fun. Uh, I think, you know, if you want to go and see a band just stand in one place and, and just recreate the sound of their album, it's, you know, that's fine too. But, you know, you certainly don't get that with us. You see a lot more, you get a lot more show, you know. No, and that's why I think maybe, and you can answer this better than I can, it seems to me on the surface that Maiden is bigger now than you ever were. Um, well, I couldn't tell you in terms of you know facts and figures, but it certainly feels that way. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. I'm sure we can ask Rod. He'll know every figure down to the last dime. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's talk about, um, you mentioned earlier touring with Judas Priest, your, your very first tour of the States. I'm not sure if yeah. it was with Priest, but just talk about when you guys first came over here, what that was like. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it was opening up for Priest. Mm, and okay. the first show was, well, we flew into to uh, L.A. And we went to the Sunset Marquee, which is like the mecca for all English bands when you go there. It's like I walked into the lobby. The first person I saw was Jeff Beck, you know. Right. So we stayed there for a few days, did did some interviews, went down to the Rainbow Bar and Grill. You know, Jimmy Page is sitting at the next table. You know, it's like incredible. There's all these women jumping all over us. And then we went, the first gig we did was in um, Las Vegas at the Aladdin Theatre opening for Priest. And I think I was physically sick before the show. I thought, God, this is America. I've always dreamed about playing here, you know. And then uh, after that show, we were joined on the tour by a band called Humble Pie, and they, it was us opening the show for 30 minutes, Humble Pie and Judas Priest. And Humble Pie were well, one of my all-time favorite bands. I mean, Steve Marriott yeah. was an absolute hero of mine. And there he was, you know. And, you know, we looked up to all these guys, you know. And then Whitesnake came on the tour, old Whitesnake. <laughs> you know, I say the original with Bernie Mars and Mickey Moody, Coverdale, obviously. And Ian Pace and John Lord. Oh, wow. And Deep Purple were like my religion when I was 15, you know. <laughs> so there I am, you know, on a flight, sitting next to Ian Pace, you know, going to a gig, and we're talking about sound and songs and music. It was just incredible, you know, really amazing. Did you go over pretty well right off the bat in America? We did. We did, yeah. I mean, talking about, uh, you know, playing live, I, I was watching, you know, we got Steve's son's band out at a Raven Age, you know, mm-hmm. and these guys are so 
smooth and professional, you know, and they've got their inner monitor system, they've got their whole system working, and they're on stage and they're all relaxed. And when we played, it was like, it was like a hurricane, you know, quite often we didn't have sound checks, the sound wasn't great, we didn't have a lot of room, we were falling over, tangling leads, it was just chaos, but we, <laughs> it was exciting, you know, yeah. and we, and we did go over, I mean, Steve really attacked the audience, you know, he just, he just had such conviction in what he was doing, he'd be right out the front from the very first song, you know, Mm-hmm. And he just made people get into it, you know. It was incredible to watch, really, when I think back on it. Yeah, because you always heard, too, about, you know, Iron Maiden coming, even when up in Canada, up in Winnipeg, and, and you guys are touring with Priest, and then you're going to tour with 38 Special, and then suddenly out of yeah. nowhere... Yeah, 38 that must have been an interesting mix with a Southern rock band. Amazing. So, uh, 38 Special and Rainbow, and they were, they were alternating headlining. Hmm. So we'd open up, and then it would be 38, and then Rainbow, and then the next night it'd be us, Rainbow and 38. They were great guys. They were just happy-go-lucky, very happy to be doing it. You had um, Donny Van Zandt, you know, singing mm-hmm. in the band, you know, who looked exactly like Ronnie, which is really weird. <laughs> who looks exactly um, like Johnny. In fact, I, in fact, I called him Ronnie once, and I felt terrible. <laughs> he didn't say anything. Yeah. They, they were great, you know, and... Um, Rainbow, you know, with Richie Blackmore now, you know, like I said, purple on my religion. And But we we hardly ever saw Richie off stage, a very kind of moody character, mm-hmm. living up to his uh, reputation. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, some nights he'd come on stage and and uh, start smoke on the water and then just play the intro and walk off and leave the crowd absolutely going crazy, almost rioting, you know, but that's what he was like. He never gave you any advice? Did you ever run into him at all? Not really, no. You know, this is the thing. I, I wish I was so shy there. I was only a kid, really. I was only 23, 24. I just wish I could do it now because I'd love to talk to Steve Marriott more in depth. I'd love to talk to, you know, Richie Blackmore. I would have probably had more confidence in myself and just gone right in, going right up to him and sat him down and picked his brains, you know. But, you know, you can't go back in time. I actually had a few chats with Steve Marriott, but, you know, he was a very intimidating character. He was very he walked it like he talked it. He was wild off stage and he was wild on stage. He was always in trouble, you know, right. Uh, <laughs> he was a real character. So for you know, just, and it, it, I thought, well, this guy's done everything. He's been everywhere. But in reality, he was only probably in his early thirties when we toured, you know, I thought he was a, an older guy, you know, an old guy. That's what, you know, how long ago it was. But let's get to, you're so green and such a rookie, you know, if you would have known, yeah. now you could go to Richie Blackmore because he would know, oh, it's Adrian from Iron Maiden. Everyone knows Iron Maiden. At the time, you're just another opening band in a litany of probably a dozen opening bands on that tour, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, you you know, you, you keep your head down. and Well, especially, in, in, you know, for me, I'm, I'm pretty late, mate. Well, I was then. Just keep your head down and, you know, just do the best you can and uh, just, you uh, keep pushing on, you know. Did you uh, ever, uh, I think you told me a funny story, but you met Paul McCartney one time. Is that true? Do you remember this? No, no. It, I, he was uh, an EMI thing in um, in England. I didn't actually meet him. Some of the other guys met him. Uh, Dave Murray said he spoke to Paul McCartney, and the first thing Paul McCartney said is, all my kids have got pictures of Iron Maiden all over their wall, or <laughs> something like that. He said, "You're Johnny the band." Johnny Cash said the same thing. You're the band with Johnny the monster. The, 
Johnny Cash did the same thing? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, he might have said that as well, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're the band with that. the monster. <laughs> I mean, Johnny Cash turned up at a soundcheck of ours once. I mean, how bizarre is that? We're soundchecking at this club. All of a sudden, this guy walks in the back of the club in the afternoon, long black gunfighter coat, you know. Yeah. I'm, st- I'm standing up on stage, you know, playing Rothschild or something, and then I think to myself, bloody hell, it's Johnny Cash. So we finish the sound check, go out to the dressing room, and there in comes Johnny. Loveliest guy, really great energy. And he was with his band, and he said to me, come up to me and said, my grandkids love you guys. <laughs> you know, they were his grandkids were fans of the band. So we gave him autographs, and uh, of course I got his autograph. But that was really cool. Well. How could you not, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about um, quickly here as we start to wind down. Um it's a famous moment in, 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 in rock and roll history, heavy metal history of, of, of the Hearing Aid Project and Stars. The, 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 the song that Dio did for, for charity back when it was all about Band Aid and Live Aid. And the reason why I'm asking this, I just happened to watch it the other day, and you and, a, uh, oh, you and Dave are involved. And just tell yeah. us a little bit about that, because you guys play this really killer little melody harmony behind the chorus yeah. where everyone else is just wanking away. What was that like, that session, and why, how did you decide to do something melodic rather than try and do a blistering solo? Well, I think we were... I can't remember. So, I mean, Jimmy Bain got in touch with us, because Jimmy you know, used to take a little bit of an interest in us, and um, right. we kept in touch with him a bit. And he'd show up at gigs in L.A., and lead us astray you know as he, as he used to do <laughs> right. and um he you know he asked rod if any of the guys would would contribute so if, you know no one else wanted to do it so dave and i we said yeah so we rolled out oh, to be honest i was dreading it because i i never really liked that whole la shredder scene i it, it was it was kind of intimidating because I, I grew up you know playing rock blues really mm-hmm. I, that wasn't my thing you know uh, shredding mm-hmm. and all that and uh, these guys uh, let's face it they were good yeah, Vivian Campbell and all all these guys you know shredding and George all Lynch well, and Sean no, uh, sorry and Neil, Neil Sean and George Lynch and Mountain yeah, exactly yeah. and they're all like trying to play faster than each other and you know it's like oh god um, so we went in there and I thought I said to Dave look why don't we just do some I've got this guitar line you know and I, we put it over the chorus I Luckily, I, I can think of things like that on my feet, mm. so that got me out of trouble. But um, <laughs> you know, it was a, it was a very much an LA recording scene. It was all the control room was full of groupies. There were people smoking joints and snorting blow and all sorts of things. It was like uh, you know, it was very decadent. So you know, I, did, I couldn't wait to do my thing and get out of there. To be honest, but you know, it's all in a good cause, I suppose. <laughs> couldn't wait to get your thing down and go hang out in the control room. Well, no, we did our parts in the control room, actually, oh. amid all this debauchery, you know. <laughs> Although, I must say, Ronnie Dio is a love, was a lovely guy, you know, and he yeah. was sort of producing the session. And No, he was straight as a judge, you know. Let's not, not get that right. Let's get that right. So he directed us, and, and uh, I said, I've got this part. And he said, oh, cool, we just put it out. I think maybe he was relieved that there wasn't a guy going to come in and start shredding for four hours, you know. It's too um, much. So we did our thing and then got out of it. <laughs> yeah. Vivian, Vivian told me when he got the gig with Ronnie, because he said everybody was just shredding away, and he came yeah. and shredded, and then Dio said, what else you got? And he started playing Chuck Berry blues riffs, and that's when Dio yeah. said, now you're on to something. Let me hear more of that. 
So you, you're probably right about yeah, that. Yeah, cool. Speaking of debauchery, do you remember the night that we had uh, after we went and saw Jekyll and Hyde in New York City? Yeah, you know what? I remember it to a point, Chris, but um, I, you know, I remember being in a restaurant and then and then going to, uh, to a club or something. I don't remember much after that, mate. I yeah. think you might have paid the bill, though. <laughs> <laughs> we we went to uh, see Sebastian. This is when you were in uh, New York doing press, I think, for um, maybe Psycho Motel, one of your solo records. And oh, we, is that right? Yeah. We went and saw Jekyll and Hyde, your wife and my wife and a couple yeah. of the friends. And then after we went to Sebastian, he was the star. Sebastian Bach had a bar that he went to afterwards. And we went oh, there and God. proceeded to just get completely, you know, off our rockers. And I think at one point... I do remember that. Yeah. Sorry, I, I do remember Sebastian Bart was really good. In, he played Jekyll and Hyde. He was amazing. He was. And then we ended up pouring beer on each other's head and shooting oh, ketchup into each other's face. At one point, I cornered you and, and then told you every one of the songs that you'd ever written in Iron Maiden. Oh, and wow. You were like, yeah, I know... <laughs> I know what songs I've written. I'm like, no. <laughs> you were just reaffirming it. You know, exactly. Just exactly. making sure. <laughs> Last couple of questions for you, Adrian. I know you've been on, on, a, on, a, on a long tour, uh, but you do love yeah. do love fishing. Do you still get to get a chance to go fishing on, on your days off once in a while? I do. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking out my, my window in here in, Minneapolis, in uh, sorry, St. Paul, Minnesota, and they've got the Mississippi outside. I was over there yesterday and... Um, like I'll be up in uh, Calgary in a few days, so I'll be going down the Bow River, uh, yeah. like I did with your buddy Dave uh, a few years ago. That's right, my cousin Chad and my friend the... Spee. We took you fishing a couple of years ago. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I'll be doing that, and um, yeah, music, fishing. But see, that's the that's, cool thing uh, is that is that you know passions. we know how it is when you have days off, and if you're just sitting around doing nothing, you're just wasting a day, oh, and it's the God. worst feeling in the world. So some guys like to go yeah. golfing, some guys like to go sightseeing, but for you to have that fishing outlet, that's probably a, probably helps you stay sane on the road. Yeah, you know, something to do, like say, you know, keeps you active, gets you out there. It's actually quite a good exercise. I do a lot of walking and gets you out of fresh air, get out of the hotel. Last couple of questions. What's the biggest fish that you ever caught? Oh, it's, I was thinking about that today. It's probably a sturgeon. Hmm. I was in... Um, I was in Vancouver one time, and I'd, I'd never even seen a sturgeon, let alone caught one. So I went up to the uh, Fraser River, got a guide, went out in this huge jet boat, and we got into these sturgeon. These things are over 100 pounds. Wow. And I was fighting the sturgeon, and my arms were literally hanging off, aching. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to play the show in my <laughs> life if I, you know. <laughs> right. Is that one of those things where you have to strap yourself in and like slowly reel it in over the course of like an hour or two hours or something like that? Well, we hooked into this thing and the, the guide put one of those um, fighting harnesses on me. He didn't quite strap me in, but he, you know, you, you stick a rod in a, in a sort of a harness that's strapped to you. Then he just sat down and started rolling a cigarette like, you know, don't rush it. It's going to take a while, you know. So, yeah, those things... You know, I don't think they even know what's going on. They're so big, they just kind of uh, just keep going, and you have to follow them. You know, right, right, because that's what they say. Like, you know, the Loch Ness monster could be a sturgeon, a giant sturgeon, or something like that, because they're so yeah, big and so know. slow. Right? Yeah. Uh, last question: What's your favorite song to play uh, uh, on this on this tour? Probably "Greater Good of God." I'd say 
definitely enjoying that one. I love that tune. And uh, like I said, it's always a pleasure to to hang out and have a chat with you. I'm glad we're able to work this out. All right. Pleasure, Chris. Nice to talk to you, mate. Thanks, man. I'll see you in a couple weeks and have fun in the peg, man. Winnipeg, great rock and roll crowds. The peg. Yeah, I will do. All, All right. right, mate. Cheers, man. Thanks. Cheers, Chris. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Nader. Bye. Bye. 